Live from the internet, it's the Narrative After Show. Bringing you the entire week in review. With Rachel Binnikoffer, Eric Garland, and here's your host, Zed Chalet. Everybody, it's Zev Shalev. Before we get into tonight's explosive narrative, I wanted to share a clip from another show that I think you'll love, the hit pop culture podcast, Spectacle. This season of Spectacle delves into the history of true crime, from the cases that shook us to our core, to its passionate audience, and what narratives and stereotypes it reinforces in our culture. From Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment, Spectacle True Crime is available June 23rd. Here's a clip. Dawn Cecil never thought her criminology courses would be so popular. She teaches at the University of South Florida. But with the explosion of true crime and classes with names like Orange is the New Black and Women in Prison, she's seen her roster fill up quickly. She's learned students are interested for many reasons, reasons that sometimes perplex her. Like that time she went on a field trip with some students. I have actually been to death row where Ted Bundy was once held. The reason I remember this is because we saw the electric chair and one of my students said, my hero died in that chair. She's like, what? I must have heard you wrong. What do you mean your hero? And she said, Ted Bundy was executed in that chair. And they all had sat in this chair, which is its own gruesome thing um but I was like you are a criminology student you're studying about justice and you just called Ted Bundy your hero this was a field trip to Florida State Prison and part of the tour was seeing the electric chair the electric chair that executed Ted Bundy among others you know Ted Bundy, the serial killer from the 70s who confessed to killing at least 30 women, and some estimate his victim count is closer to 100. But despite that, people think it's cool to be closer to this man. So they asked the students if they wanted to sit in it, and they all wanted to sit in it. I've actually been twice, and every student sat in it both times. I mean, why? Why are we like this? We can't entirely fault this woman for exalting Ted Bundy for whatever strange reason, because you know what? She's mirroring society. And that is what I want us to explore today. What makes us lionize, obsess, fantasize over murderers? And why are some killers more interesting to us than others? Time and time again, we see media come out, movies, TV shows, podcasts, that are trying to get into the mind of the killer. And oftentimes, in this attempt to understand the person behind the gruesome crimes, we end up downplaying the heinous acts and sympathizing a person who does not deserve our sympathy. Bundy is the most obvious example of this. His trial in the late 70s was the first to be televised nationally, and it was kind of a sensation. Even though he was accused and would later be convicted of bludgeoning and then raping and strangling women, he was described as handsome and charismatic. Assault and murder. Yeah, 
charming. Well, so when Ted Bundy was on trial in 1979, not only were people watching it on TV, but young women were driving to go to the trial live. That's Alyssa Wilkinson. She's a film critic and senior culture reporter at Vox. And then when we think about someone like Ted Bundy, again, handsome, suave, educated, the judge said that, you know, he would have made a good lawyer (laughs) during the trial. We're seeing a televised trial, and that means that the person who's sort of in the center of the trial becomes a star. And that's even more potent in the early days of televised trials. Ted Bundy was the star. Each day, the courtroom is filled with spectators drawn by a fascination with Theodore Bundy himself or by the gruesome details of the crimes, bloodstained pillows, pictures of the murdered co-eds, evidence that the women were sexually abused. What is unusual to see is that many of the onlookers are women, young women, contemporaries of the five Florida State sorority sisters who were assaulted in their beds a year and a half ago. Some saw a man who had terrorized women like them, and it scared them. Every time he turns around, I kind of get that feeling, no, no, you know, he's going to get me next. Even though they're hearing the gruesome details of these murders, many women were so taken by him that they couldn't believe that he'd really done it. I'm not afraid of him. He just doesn't look like the type to kill somebody. You try to imagine yourself in his place and to see how he's feeling, looking at the pillows with blood stains and everything, if he really did it or not. There were women who were able to distance themselves from his heinous acts and find him, okay, I can't believe I'm even saying this, desirable. They were sometimes dressing up like the stereotype of his victims, which was long hair parted in the middle, wearing hoop earrings, young, beautiful women. That was his typical victim. Yes, there were groupies, serial killer groupies. And keep in mind, these women were saying this after hearing brutal testimony from survivors like Karen Chandler. I had a broken jaw. Um, Some of my teeth were knocked out. Um, I had um, broken facial bones. I had a broken arm and a crushed finger. Or her sorority sister, Kathy Kleiner. My jaw was broken in three places. I had um, lacerations on my shoulder and like whiplash on my neck. Any problem with uh, your teeth? Yes, sir. I had, um, my teeth are still loose on the bottom. I have a pin in my jaw. For people watching, there was this mixture of fear and intrigue. Here is a suave white guy murdering promising young white women. And the reason it becomes a media circus is simply because that's not someone that we expect. So much of true crime is defined not so much by the reality of what happened, but our societal expectations of what a person who would do that might be like or look like. And when they butt up against those stereotypes, we find it surprising or even impossible. And that's what this episode is all about. Serial killers as sex symbols. Ted Bundy was handsome. Charles Manson was sexy. And Jeffrey Dahmer was cute. And oh yeah, one minor fact, they murdered people. 
Why do we glamorize men who commit heinous acts, particularly white, conventionally attractive men? What about all the other killers out there? And what does it say about us that we continue to tell these stories over and over and over again? We're going to get into that and so much more. Stay with us. From Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Mariah Smith, and this is Spectacle True Crime. From Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment, Spectacle True Crime is available right now. We made it to another week. This is, in fact, the final episode of the after show and narrative for the season, which is exciting, too, because we're going on a bit of a vacation or a little bit of a work break, I should say. Uh, but on the other hand, we'll be having lots of great episodes to repeat over the next few weeks, which you'll love. Eric Garland, still in his classified position. I don't know where you are, somewhere, location in the greater United States, I assume. How are you doing, Eric? I'm well. You're well. You know, you, you know, we're missing a third participant here because Rachel is off to a rally. She discovered there was a rally near where she lives about the Supreme Court decision, which is, of course, the big news today. And she's going to rally and she's going to be reporting live from there. So I'm excited to see Rachel. She looked very excited on her way there, but uh, we didn't want her driving and talking at the same time. So uh, we'll fill in the airtime a little bit here while she joins us uh, from the rally. I'm not even sure where it is. I'm not sure. Portland, I guess. I don't know. It'll be nice to see some of the action that we've been seeing on pictures across the, you know, on TV. Like there's a lot of rallies, a lot of these instant rallies sort of uh, showing up in various parts of the country as the world reacts to this really stunning decision, this 50 year decision to take away women's rights to decide what to do with their bodies. And uh, it's just the beginning. You know, this is just the beginning of a clawback of rights, the likes of which we have not seen before in American history and, and surely uh, something that's uh, going to be a great test of the American system. Eric, what do you think of the decision today? You know, it would be great to get Rachel in as well. Of course, you know, she's got a, a different perspective, but what do you think of the decision and how it feeds into the current you know, attack on democracy? Well, here's the thing. I, I haven't read Dobbs v. Jackson. Mm. I do read a lot of different uh, Supreme Court decisions and something I'm very careful about with interpreting SCOTUS decisions is that they're usually, you know, they're very subtle. Mm. Um, this is the highest court in the land and even the things that have, you know, really rough interpretations and can have a serious interpretation down the line, it's really hard to understand for the average person. So it's not always very helpful when I'm told how to be emotional about it prior mm. to understanding it. And I haven't, so I, I've seen a couple of attempts at a substantive analysis of the piece. I, I gather that it says that the federal government should uh, have a sweeping statement uh, you know, legally to make about this matter and that it should go to the states. Um, Missouri's governor, uh, Mike Parson, and its uh, embattled attorney general, you know, the attorney general and the governor already came out with opinions trying to build off this to ban abortion in Missouri, which is very interesting since the governor and uh, the attorney general don't actually make laws. Mm. But then again, it is Missouri, and they don't seem to know what a job title is. <laughs> I mean, look, this is clearly once they withdraw Roe versus Wade, which has now basically been 
withdrawn and you know it overturned it's overturned it's no longer law of the land wow. it triggers a whole lot of existing laws in a lot of states and that's where the concern comes into immediately because there is a these laws that have existed on the books of many states which make abortion you know illegal under many circumstances and of course you know this particular decision doesn't allow for any room for abortion under almost any circumstance Maybe death, maybe that's the only, even that seems quite limited. There is no assertion here that anyone from a federal perspective can be giving anyone the right to abort a baby at all. And, and that's well, just seeming. We have to, you know, by the way, I have no doubt that this is probably dire. I mean, they've gotten, uh, you know, taken on whether or not anyone can be held accountable for not <clears throat> adhering to uh, the Miranda warnings as a law enforcement officer. Mm -hmm. Now, the Miranda decision was a very important one. It said that, you know, when a law enforcement officer arrests a U.S. citizen, that that citizen who may not understand due process under the Bill of Rights, that they need to be advised as to what it means when they, you know, law enforcement officers are authorized by way of an arrest warrant or probable cause to lay hands on them, which would otherwise, of course, be illegal restraint or kidnap. Right. Very special has happened to you that an uh, officer of the state is laying is is essentially committing violence against you, taking you against your will, and putting you someplace that you don't want to be. And that's a thing. So well, well hold thing. on. That's yeah. in, that's also that's the you know all laws enforced through violence. So yeah. that it's not abnormal. It's special, and it's important to get due process under it. Right. Same thing with the court seizing anything of yours. You know, these are fundamental parts of jurisprudence. And uh, they just need to be treated with, with seriousness and uh, with the rule of law. Miranda helped establish that you need to be advised of your rights when you were being arrested and go, hey, you don't have to tell us anything. And anything you do tell us, anything you say can come up in court. You're being arrested now. You might want to wait for an attorney. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not everything of due process. That's not you know, all the difference you're given. But it was a decision that I think is very important. You know, in establishing the, the rules of engagement for law enforcement officers. And we just said, well, but if they break that if, as law enforcement officers, then there's no liability, which is, I mean, so it's subtle, it was just, but it's a strange distinction. And essentially it says, well, it's not that important. Whereas Miranda said is it's, it's important. Right. So did they overturn Miranda? That's not really how it's superseded by another decision that helps fill it out. So, but so far, know. this court has had a very, uh, especially this, this week, has had quite a tremendous impact. You know, the, the overturning of the uh, open carry laws in New York State. I mean, that's a pretty dramatic, bold decision for a court like this. And then following it up to today with an overturning of Roe versus Wade, uh, you know, this is a court with an agenda. This is an activist court. Um, ah, well, see, okay, we can talk about what cases are before the court and whether the, the marquee of we can have you can sprinkle guns on your breakfast cereal now. And uh, now there's no right to an abortion. You know, those are not very subtle ways of putting those things. But hold on, let's when we back up, go out 10, 20,000 feet. What happened this week? All right, we're zoning in on all the treason. They're rolling FBI vans on heads of the GOP in various states. Jenny Thomas is looking more and more uh, you know, implicated in a, you know, a treasonous coup d'etat attempt, and they move up all these decisions to this week for SCOTUS and in what the media is going to obviously take a hold of and say, ah, 
rope weights on and there's you know every kid has to have a, a, a pistol at their birthday party from age one on up i mean every, you know, this is very serious though great- i mean i understand what you're saying i understand that you you know that there is a feeling and i have the same feeling that we're being sort of gaslit into a, a frenzy here. And clearly this is an election ploy heading towards the elections, that this becomes a big factor into the elections, serving the Democrats more than the Republicans. But it's still incredibly serious. We're talking about, you know, 22 states in the oh, union yeah. not having abortion available to women who might need it in extreme cases, including rape, including, you know, incest, including any number of things. There's a lot uh, here that is very damaging. Plus the Thomas, what he called it, I don't know, it's not a decision, but his additional uh, statement there, whatever judgment is, that they he believes that they can now extend this to looking at cases involving gay rights, not only gay rights in terms of marriage, but gay rights in terms of can you be gay? Is it legal to be gay? And then also uh, looking at contraception as a big issue. Can married couples have contraception in their marriages? That's an actual thing that Thomas is inviting the court to look into. There is already a protest uh, case that's coming to the United States Supreme Court, which will challenge the protest rights. You know, we'll, do we have free speech in terms of protest? That's literally going to come up in this, you know, as we're watching all these protests develop. I mean, this is a very different framework of laws that we've ever seen come out of the Supreme Court. So I understand what you're saying. This is a yet another gaslighting, and it's happened since 2016 that we've been gaslit on a regular basis. But it's serious, this one, too. And, the, uh, you know, it's gaslighting with, a, with, with real intent. Absolutely. And, you know, here's the thing. This is the with regards to, you know, female reproductive rights and medical procedures that normally are decided by physicians and the patient and whatnot. There have been state laws that have been nipping away at this. It's it's hard in Missouri to get a tubal ligation, you know, out of medical need. So we've already been tiptoeing down this fascistic path for a while. We're talking about, you know, things that are not medically logical in any way Mm. and that you know for political reason you know these state legislatures have been pushing towards so i mean they have been going in this direction and you know i don't think the abortion debate is about abortion uh, any more than i think that the gun debate is about guns i think it's about being arbitrary and absolutist i think you have you know there's been a push toward uh totalitarian thinking and policy and the whole point of things that are arbitrary and absolute is you'll do what we say when we say and because we say exactly and that is not what america is about of course america that's the antithesis of america you know there's none of these prospective laws are you know in any way represent freedom and liberty there's this is a march towards totalitarianism towards government in every aspect of your life, including, you know, your bedroom and everywhere else it, it, it may choose to be. It's not the America that all of us have signed up for, that's for sure. I don't think it's just America. I, I don't think we're just going back to a Bill of Rights or, you know, the 13th Amendment, you know, America 2 or Electric Boogaloo. Mm. I think we're going back to the Enlightenment. I think we're going back pre-Renaissance. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, yeah, you know, these guys are, hey, here uh, in Missouri, you have people, uh, you have, uh, there's a case uh, right now where um, uh, St. Louis County uh, had uh, one of its attorneys resign because there's a case that's trying to get at the, the circumstances around a man who died in the local jail. And the local jail's uh, covering up all sorts of documents. And it's now gone to the federal level, and there's, you know, obstruction. Bottom line, what I'm getting at is that. 
that government has trouble with habeas corpus, mm. whether or not there should be any due process to yank you off the street and throw you in. That's the Magna Carta. That's mm. the 13th century. Yeah. So this is not just America, which was, you know, 1776 plus when we got this established. This is, they don't like the ability to speak out and criticize of the Enlightenment. They don't like any of the scientific revolution from the Renaissance. Hell, they're even choking on the 12th cent, the 1200s of should a king have to answer to anybody? Or should you have due process if you're going to throw somebody in a prison? I mean, for Christ's sake. So that's who these people are. And you know what? I, I, mean, I will say that this is not just these people. I mean, we've come up a week, you know, where we've, or a few weeks now, where we've seen that the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, was involved in an, an attempted coup, an attempt to overthrow the will of the people in a really ag aggressive, uh, massive conspiracy. And, you know, so I think most Americans have come around to that uh, conclusion now that this man was a criminal president in doing criminal things. And it's not the only criminal thing he was doing. I mean, I look back now at his four-year assault on this court that Donald Trump did to this court. And it started with the assault on Justice Anthony, the removing him from office, you know, for good reason, perhaps. Perhaps there was something wrong with Mr. Anthony's uh, history or maybe his family history. We know that certainly there's some relationship between Anthony Kennedy's son and, and Donald Trump himself through Deutsche Bank. But, you know, it was a very aggressive push to get Kennedy off this bench. They were really went out of their way, the, uh, the Trumps, to get that happening. And then afterwards, these three Supreme Court justices that Donald Trump was able to install in there, which you have to ask, you know, if this guy is such a criminal, if he is now almost certainly involved in rigging the 2016 election somehow or, you know, invalidly through foreign help. We know that he was involved in this horrendous first impeachment thing with Ukraine. There's now this insurrection slash coup that happened. And, you know, he's a criminal throughout the entire four years. And yet he gets to keep this, this three-person legacy on the Supreme Court, where forever he will be able to, you know, not forever, seemingly for the next 40 years or so, maybe, be able to control so much of the social issues that matter in America. And then you have to look back and say, well, who put Donald Trump there? Who are the supporters of Donald Trump? And to a large extent, they're foreign people, some local, some domestic forces, of course, the Council for National Policy, among others. But there's a lot of foreign forces there too. And so why are we allowing this man who is so illegitimate to put this court together? It's just beyond me. Well, you know, this is a very special court here. Um, I'm going to go back to the topic of the week. Uh, we've never had a court where the one of the members, or possibly more, are suspected to be part of a conspiracy to commit a coup d'etat. Mm -hmm. That's really that's really special. It's not typical. You know, I wonder if we shouldn't go back and review a lot of the decisions here and go, well, yeah, these were the decisions that were made, but um, you know, we were we were also rolling uh, you know rolling FBI raids onto uh, the co-conspirators of. Uh, one of the justices' wives, and you know, people are facing twenty to fifty years in prison for you know maybe that affected the quality of some of the decisions. I think that's a reasonable question to ask here. So, I think it's a really legitimate question, and I think we will talk about it a little bit more. But here's Rachel Bittercalfer in uh, in the streets. Oh, where are you, Rachel? Can you even hear us? I don't know if you can hear us. We can yeah, see you right here in the streets of Eugene, Oregon, at our local UGOP rally. Love that. Love that. Um, how many people are there yet? Do we know how many folks are there? No, this, this hasn't started yet. I'm a little early. I'm doing some pregame with you guys on the show and, and then I'm going to go and I'm going to rage against the machine. 
and you were just decided to do this on the fly. Like a lot of people today, it seems in, across the country have decided to go out and just and express their points of view on this. And that's uh, amazing and important. And peaceful protest is an important part of how we get through all of this. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, definitely reassuring to see the streets, especially the streets of our major cities flooding with people who are pissed off and not going to go back to 1955. Yeah. Eric and I have opinions about uh, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, but you are far more qualified than us to discuss this. So tell us what you think about the decision. Uh, I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat it. This is a total and complete evisceration of what, you know, as a professor, I've been teaching for years the right to privacy. It is one of the bedrock constitutional principles of modern contemporaneous American society. And what they have done in going after abortion, which is, of course, the motivation, they have set us up to see the right to privacy attacked from multiple angles. We're going to see women today. Um, but this court, especially if it can amass more legislative power in the Congress and t- retake the presidency, they have the ambitions to roll us right back to the 1950s. And that means that gay people are on the agenda, not just in terms of marriage, which is, of course, a really important uh, fundamental right for gay Americans. But beyond that, I mean, the right to privacy controls contraceptive access. It controls access to pornography or to, you know, even having gay relationships. The states had uh, laws that outlawed, you know, they call them sodomy laws. I hate saying that because I think it's just um, a really up way to put it, right? But at the end of the day, that the laws were called anti-sodomy laws. And it was until the 1965 Bowers decision that we start to see stuff like that get rolled back, right? Can, and you, explain so, to, can you explain exactly what that means? Why are the why are these gay rights and other rights so attached to this particular decision? Hold on, it's not, it wasn't just for, uh, for, for gay people, it was oral and anal sex across the board. Yeah, right, and right. That, was in, that was enforced in Virginia for a long time, which made it extra fun to go on dates in Virginia in the Washington, D.C. area because you could just cross the river and fight the power, you know. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So the reason why I'll tell you is this, and I just was tweeting about this in the it's pretty buried in my Twitter anger storm of today. Um, But I talked about how in when we think about conservatism and liberalism in terms of the court, historically speaking, what that has meant is the conservative element of the court has decided the state over the rights of individuals. And that's why when we think about the modern conceptualization of criminal law in the U.S., which is really all post-Miranda, post-Warren court, that's what happened. The court with a liberal majority began to assert individual autonomy over police power in many different areas, search and seizure and others, uh, imprisonment, trial assistance, and what have you. And as that began to emerge, its jurisprudence is, of course, occurring in the 1960s, along with the reproductive jurisprudence and other areas that tie in. And what it was all bound together to create, coming first from Griswold into Roe and beyond, was this idea that if you have First Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, Fourth Amendment rights, Eight Amendment rights to autonomy, then that is asserting an implied right to privacy that emerges from the Constitution as a totality document okay mm. does that make sense to so you it's guys? an implication basically it's just it's there but it's not written down so it's like, right. 
it's not explicit. And there are mm. many things that the court has ruled that's not obviously explicitly written in the Constitution because yeah. the Constitution was written about very, very small segment of American society at that yeah, it time. It doesn't even mention women, does it? It talks about men. It doesn't even have uh, women mentioned in the Constitution. I don't think they are yeah. in, that, in that way. I mean, this idea, I mean, if we're going to do strict interpretation of mm. what's written in the Constitution, then I'm really sad to let gun owners know that all of their fucking guns as of today are unconstitutional because when that amendment was written, it referred to muskets and anything that's not a musket ain't fucking covered. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but what you're saying is true. I mean, this has been a remarkable week Same for the Supreme argument. Court because this overturning of the uh, open carry law in New York and then this today, it makes no sense. The two just don't make sense. It's it's either no, they are state rights or there are no state rights, but you can't have this little mixed bag depending on which party seems to be in control of the Oh, court. sure, we can have a mixed bag. I mean, yesterday, right, it was sank or suck that the, the states could not fucking interfere with a gun. Okay, so in New York City, it doesn't matter how sequestered, canned in at, at a subway fucking stop you are, according to these nut jobs that the conservatives have packed onto the court, there's a sacrosic right for the other person to strap a fucking gun to themselves and take it into the subway with right. you, right? But at the end of the day, when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to our bodily autonomy, to full citizenship, equality under the law, totally different fucking state of being that. That is all coming from this federal document that doesn't explicitly say abortion's protected as a fundamental liberty and therefore has been eviscerated. The legal rationale that the court has used is morally bankrupt. It's bankrupt in every way. It's constitutionally bankrupt. But it is at the end of the day, what they have done with the court is they have taken and created an ideological body to get a contrived outcome out of jurisprudence, and that's what they have. But this is a capture of the Supreme Court. This is not the way the Supreme Court would normally be operating if it wasn't for these external forces that have had imprinted themselves onto America through the Trump presidency and then, you know, through these appointments of the Supreme Court. Under normal circumstances, this court would be up, would not be passing these laws. We have an extremist wing that's occupied our Supreme Court. Yeah, and to be clear, these, these justices that overturned Roe, they could not have been confirmed on the court a decade ago mm. because they would never have met the filibuster threshold mm. of 60 fucking votes. So every one of these nominees, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Amy Comey Barrett, all would have been subjected to at least needing 10, 9, 8, whatever Democratic votes to get through. And therefore, that's why we had a more moderated choice of judges. And to be fair, you know, this we probably would not have been able to nominate someone like Sotomayor either under 60 votes. But that's what you really want in a court. You want a court that is pushed to moderation. And Eric, I'm sorry I cut you off. I'll let you go now. I was just going to say that, you know, we've never had a week where this many things happen like in a cluster with this many fundamental rights and where the Supreme Court changes up their hearing schedule. It's all, I, again, I gotta, I'm just a suspicious individual. I'm just wondering if it's, they're worried about the wife of one of the justices being arrested uh, and they're just trying to get some stuff through. I mean, we've never uh, really had. timing is honestly driven by their yes. inability. They're, they don't want to have, um, like, so normally you guys know as well as I do, they hold the final court decision for the final, the big decision for the final court decision. And it's the last day of the session before it comes out. And there's this whole like group outside. I think honestly, like the timing, just like the um, warrant being served on Jeff Clark is unconnected to the timing of the committee hearing. This is also unconnected.
but you know, it, well, so it, they it, say. I mean, it's it's hard to see how they. Well, not, I, I think, well, I think what, if I'm taking where Rachel's at, yeah, technically that's true. Mm. Practically, it's more interesting. Well, because people are making that connection anyhow, right? I mean, at the end of the day, Rachel, don't people making that connection? We're making this connection. Yeah, people make all kinds of conspiratorial connections. It doesn't mean that they're factually accurate. Our brains are wired to that shit, by the way. So it's not. Yeah, absolutely. But our our brains are also wired to have understood this week that, you know, I was saying earlier before you joined us that the president was involved in a massive conspiracy to overthrow the government and overthrow the will of the people. And uh, that seems to have been true. That wasn't something that anyone had made up. That's, well, that was not. Um, that was um, really not much of a leap, dude. Yeah, I know, <laughs> right? So they committed their crimes in the open the so, whole time, from like the beginning of it to the end. You know, and, and here he is also having put together a Supreme Court because really this is his yeah. Supreme Court. This is oh, yes. yeah, this is Donald Trump's legacy. He is the man that pushed America all over the cliff into you know, really quasi fascism. And then the question is, will we go all the way over? Or are we going to catch a limb here this fall? Is Eric's point completely far off that there's a, there's a Ginny Thomas question, which I have around why Clarence Thomas is even on the bench still. You know, this guy has obviously proven to be questionable because of his wife's dealings with the insurrection and the coup. He's already uh, under a lot of pressure to maybe to at least recuse himself and not retire. And yet here he is issuing this extra decision saying, hey, and I want to see contraception and, uh, and gay rights and for whatever other rights he's going to throw in there coming up soon in the Supreme Court, too. I mean, it just seems like these guys are actively involved in the destruction of the rule of law in America. Yeah, I mean, dude, it's not a abortion crisis. It's not even a women's crisis mm-hmm. or a reproductive freedom crisis. It's a rights crisis that we're facing right here. Mm-hmm. The other side, which has been culturally marginalized because you know societies evolve culture Mm. evolves it always bends towards like liberalism and things like that right so um, mostly yeah it's true so when you think about like these this is a counter majoritarian movement in the court Mm. and in the republican party and it is designed literally to impose cultural i guess what would you call it? Backpedaling on a population that has chosen to evolve naturally away from cultural conservatism. I mean, that there's, I did not really understand this, Zev, by the way, until I really learned and studied intensively the Third Reich and the Nazis, especially because you can really see, like, with the Nazi vision, it was there was this expansive imperialism element, like this international imperialism. But domestically, what they were obsessed with was culture, right? Mm. Hitler had a very white, you know, conservative vision of how culture should be. And it excluded women working. It excluded women having any role other than a indoctrinated and celebrated role of mother, right? And it was a backlash effect of the 20s to watching the roaring 20s come into Berlin. And they were able to do it, man. They were able to put culture, at least temporarily, in a box and impose this totalitarian one-party state and shit. I mean, if you can do it there, you can do it anywhere. Absolutely. I mean, I think we are at that point where this is the historic moment that we've been fearing. I mean, that the theoretical threat that, you know, autocracy was here in America is actually now not so theoretical. This is what autocracy looks like at the end of the day, when they start taking away your rights to do things, especially free speech, protests, all these other things, they're coming up soon. This is what autocracy looks like, you know, and we're seeing it in the midst of a, of a you know, of a presidency that was democratically elected, but 
it doesn't mean that we're out of the woods at all. We're in fact probably are deeper in trouble now than we were in 2016. And you've come full circle since we started the season. Now you're totally on team doom with me, Zeb. I am on team doom, but I also am still a team optimism because I still think we can find our way out of this. But I um but it is a really dramatic moment because it's not only domestic forces, by the way. You know, I talk a lot about foreign forces that are impacting America and they just have slightly different agenda. The domestic forces are interested in the white nationalism. They are interested in protecting their own power base. The foreign forces are actually just more just determined to destroy America or at least weaken America. And they seem to be in cahoots with each other. So you've got this kind oh, of yeah, no, weird so alliance. What the forces are doing is they studied American politics. These fissures are obvious, man, especially to anybody living in a functional society, right? Yeah. So when I do Canadian radio or you know London Times or whatever it is, right? I mean, the people over there are not in the weeds. So even the conservatives internationally can see how crazy this shit is, right? Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, you get into a vortex down here where where you just things start to be feel normal, but they're totally not normal. And they look totally abnormal to anybody from the outside looking in. Yeah. But even internally, I mean, we all see this, what's going on. This is not a normal array of things. All these things would not be possibly happening at the same time under normal circumstances. This is stuff hey, we'll that's find being out. We'll find out us. if everyone sees it, Zev, because like, here's the problem right now. Not everyone sees it. And that's the main hurdle that we have to overcome. This row evisceration since the memo got leaked until now, I've been talking a lot about how this is going to be a breakthrough event. There's very few things that break through to normal people. The person that you're passing by in the grocery store, okay? Not your friends, not your college friends, not the people you work with at the think tank. I'm talking about normal average people from all education levels, all races, all classes. They do not know any of this. And you know, it takes a school shooting like Uvalde, which is just terrible with a death toll that's massive and of small children to get on their radar or a tornado that wipes out 150 people. Maybe, maybe this row evisceration will get on their radar. And if it does, then it's really important that, that we are hammering a very macro message about what it means for women, because it's not about women not being able to have reproductive freedom. It's about whether or not women are equal under the law to men. And as of today, as of 10 o'clock this morning on the East Coast, the answer to that is no. Yeah, and whether we all have specific rights. I mean, you're absolutely right about the women not being equal to men under this law now. That's evident. But the idea that every one of the rights that we've taken for granted that in the last, you know, more than 50 years, really. You talk about protests. The protest right is coming up. You won't be able to boycott companies or boycott, you know, all these institutions because, uh, you know, they might eliminate the ability to do that, that boycotts might be illegal. In terms of the abortion law and contraception, the abortion pill, which has now been approved by the FDA, I think, may not be available for sale in some states to women and maybe not even be able to travel out of state. Oh, yeah, that's the the goal. And then, like, today, they're all bullshit. No, it's about the states. The states should f***ing decide. I'm like, oh, yeah, do you support a national abortion ban? Yep. But that is their vision. Their vision is this. I mean, take control of the Congress, use that to sully and punish Biden with political hit pieces, you know, with that agenda control. Sully him, sully him, sully him, win in 24 one way or the other. 
and then use that moment with that trifecta government to take over and consolidate power. And it may not happen in a flash, guys. Like the panic I I and others like me are excluding are an effort to keep us from going through any of it, right? Because we understand that once you, the average person, can see the extent of this crisis, by then people will be paying with their lives or their freedom and their economic security. And so we're trying to get people to panic before that. But it doesn't mean like, you know, Republicans will win on November 22 and then suddenly no one will be free. It's not going to happen like that. We just but we need people to understand that the, that's where the church directory will It could quick. be quite quick. It could be quite quick. Yeah. Um, let, yeah. let me ask you about the state legislatures. And I know you're holding up that phone. It must be tiring. But let me ask you, um, the state legislatures are, everyone's saying that this is a new target for Democrats in terms of potential for winning or turning some of these state legislatures. Is there really such potential for Democrats to win some of these state houses? I mean, if we wedge issue this and we make it like what I've said, okay, it's not a, it, there. Are, it's true that the marginalized communities will be the most affected. That is not the message that we should be running on. We should be running on you, American woman. Doesn't matter if you're black, white, brown, green, purple, rainbow colored, gay, straight, lesbian, um, conservative, liberal, or moderate. It doesn't matter if you like it or you hate it, at the end of the day, the Republican Party has just stripped your full citizenship. And that is the wedge that we need to be using in terms of the macro message. And we need to make what that means real for people, for voters in the voter file, especially the suburban voters, which is not white people. I'm talking about suburban voters, which are also multiracial, but very educated. And what we need to do is get them to understand this means you, this means your children, your friends, your family, and uh, self interest is what motivates people to vote other than flaming liberals, which is only about 10 to 15 percent of the electorate. So that's why my messaging is, is focused on getting people to put into personalized Sorry. format. Your messaging is perfect um, and, and always is. But I'm still asking a question about the state houses. Is there a way for some of these state houses and which of them are, do you know which offhand which one might be more vulnerable to take over by the Democrats? Are they, which are the more swinging state houses uh, that maybe uh, could impact, you know, whether abortion is legal in some of these states? Well, I mean, we'll see what happens, right? It's going to be, again, it's about how effective they can leverage it. I'm not in a position to run messaging for every state legislative race in the country. And if I was, then I would feel more bullish on their probability of flipping it this cycle and these tough fundamentals. But ultimately, you know, my mission is not just to fix messaging, it's not just to fix targeting, it's to fix the whole fucking caboodle and end this 20 years of, oh, look, they have this, this, this and this but never doing our own version of it. So it's certainly on the list. Why are you so focused on women and not everybody? Because if it's if the focus is on women, are you not worried about uh, other people saying, well, other people is really only men, saying um, yeah. that this doesn't impact them, that why should they be bothered? No, no, no. I'm not going to, like, when I speak about this, I, um, you, our ads, there are many men with daughters, right? So our ads, when we talk about, personalizing it that doesn't mean might what the way maybe democrats think which is let me make an ad specific to dominican um puerto ricans in right. south florida that's not what i mean <laughs> right. what i mean is the recipient the viewer which in these ads will be male or female or feels the threat personally right, right. so right. if a man is thinking about his daughter that is a very personalized threat. Do you see right. what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. That makes but I, I mean, personally, I understand why the, the movement 
in the 60s and the 70s was about women and really had to be led and, and all, all vocalized almost entirely by women. But in this moment, what I argue is we should have men should be just as pissed off as women. We want to drive that message home to men and make them fear for the lives, economic security, well-being of their daughters and Absolutely. drive them to the polls for us. That's a good closure for us tonight. I want to worry about yeah. your, 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 your hand being tied after holding up your phone for so long. Um, is the protest about to begin? Are you going to go exercise I, your, I, your rights? Yeah, as a, I'm getting waved at and, and okay. uh, I got to turn and go, and go in. <laughs> so, so go do that. Thank you so much, Rachel. I really appreciate you uh, calling in from the protest and your experience and knowledge is so, so incredible and so great to have your insight on the show. So thanks so much. And uh, we'll, we'll see you again you when, so when we're back. That show's going to yep. be in hiatus for a bit, but we'll be back in a month or so and uh, we'll catch up with you then. So have a great uh, Time off if you are. Bye, everybody. Off. All right. Bye-bye. Rachel Bittercoff for joining us from, I can't remember what she said, but in Oregon. Uh, in one minute from now, I'll be right back and I'll do a close on the show and also what's coming up for next season. Live from the internet, it's the Narrative After Show. Bringing you the entire week in review. With Rachel Bittercoff Eric Garland, and here's your host, Zev Shalev. Welcome back. Um, that is the last after show for this season on narrative. That does not mean that there will not be continued programming on narrative. There's just too much news. So I'll be popping up from now and then over the next month, providing you with additional coverage of everything that might be happening in the news. And clearly there's a lot going on. But we'll also have a chance over the next few weeks to review some of the bigger episodes that we've had on narrative from day one. And you know, as I was looking back at all of these, I was really struck by the enormous amount of interesting content that was produced from day one in terms of understanding Donald Trump and his influence by foreign countries. We certainly we're involved very heavily in exposing what coronavirus was all about. We've spoken at length here about January the 6th. Uh, certainly that's been one of our biggest uh, investigations. About and, and here we are on the same week that uh, the committee has so effectively argued that Donald Trump was, in fact, the ringleader of that conspiracy. These are all very crucial uh, stories that have been part of our narrative history since day one. So I'm going to be looking forward to sharing some of those with you in the next few weeks. Um, but I do want to say that there is a question mark, and I say it's a question mark because we're still very much hard at work about whether we can actually continue to do narrative into next season. You know, our goal is to be back in early August or September. But frankly, there is an enormous amount of goodwill for the show, and there's an enormous amount of fantastic patrons who we are so thankful to you because without you, none of this programming, none of this content would ever get out there. And you think about, you know, over... Uh, 500 shows and the amount of uh, written articles that have been exclusively reported on narrative, how much important content has been entered into the zeitgeist, into the stream of consciousness that has really, really impacted the story. We're really proud of that. But as things stand right now, we do not have the funding to go into another season as effectively and as, as strongly as we need to and want to. Uh, and there are a number of factors related to that. You know, there's an advertising slowdown. There's certainly a lot of challenges this year we've had from people trying to impugn the reputation of narrative and myself, all incredibly hurtful, but and inappropriate and wrong amongst many other things. And also done for reasons that are really questionable to the point of, you know, just needing to be questioned. But all those things have had an impact on 
on whether we can continue to do narrative. So it could be that within the next month or so, if we're not able to raise an additional money in many, in many ways, that we may not be able to continue to do narrative at all. My hope is that we will find that money. And my hope is that you will step up as well and help us find that money by joining up on Patreon because that is the number one place that we get our revenue from. And it's not a significant amount in terms of it's not you know, tens of thousands of dollars. It literally is only a few thousand dollars, but it's enough to allow uh, us to continue to do the programming. But we definitely need much more than that to continue to do the kind of programming you've expected from us and also to expand our programming. Um, I'm really proud of the work we've done here over the last six years. I think for a little blog and a little podcast, we sure have come a long way. And my hope is that we can continue to do that at a time when America really needs us and the world really needs uh, voices that are obviously pro-democracy. And obviously that's a big thing that we stand for, but we're also pro-American. And I, you know, a lot of our competitors out there, let's call them that, are really not pro-American. You see the amount of criticism Joe Biden gets on a regular basis from people who call themselves the left. And I, you know, I don't know what the Atlantic is on about lately and all these other, I call, I call them now the alt-left. These people are trying to take down uh, one of the best presidents in American history. This is um, a kind of disturbing trend that's been going on. And basically, you know, with us, you get what you see, you see what you get. I've been advocating for this presidency for a long time, and I certainly think they're doing a fantastic job. It doesn't mean I'm not going to be critical of them when it's necessary. But considering everything that's been happening, considering all the impact of the forces of the enemies of democracy that have been attacking America since 2016, we are such a critical point right now that we need to be united. And it's, uh, you know, it, it, you're not seeing that amongst other media sources. You're not seeing that uh, amongst a lot of people. And it really should be raising questions. So we really want to continue to be this voice. I want to continue to be this voice. It's very important to staying true to the facts, staying close to the truth. I mean, we are 100% behind the mission of finding the truth, but we're also very aware that we are one of the few voices out there that are purely pro-American, truthfully, um, but we're also pro-democracy in a way that has not been you know, exercised by other media sources at all. When you think about everything that we've uncovered from 2016, and those of you who have been with us for a long time, you'll remember Trump Russia and our investigation into Trump Russia and how that led us to understanding that there was a multinational attack on America by these foreign national forces, by these forces we dubbed the enemies of democracy. And these attacks have been continuing since 2016. They continue today. Um, a lot of what we've been seeing in the news just this week involved the same kind of forces, whether it's the coup attempt, the insurrection, or even the Supreme Court justice and the occupation of the Supreme Court. These are all things that are ultimately have foreign influences. And that's been a big core part of my reporting, whether it's reporting about Jeffrey Epstein or Elon Musk, or even Benjamin Netanyahu, or the UAE's involvement in 2016. These are the stories that you've only really seen on narrative, because that's been the only place that has been able to run those stories. So we rely on you to make this, this programming happen. It just, it, you know, it just costs to make a lot of this stuff happen, but it also costs uh, time and, and energy. And we really do hope that you can uh, step up and support us for our next season. It's going to be a big season if, if we can fund it correctly, uh, and our goal is to do an even better job than we've done up until now in terms of isolating the stories that really matter. You know, last year we did a big thing about January the 6th. And for a long time, people said to me, why are you focusing on January the 6th? It's overblown the amount of January the 6th investigations you're doing. And I, and I refused to stop because it was clear to me that what was going on was a massive insurrection and a coup attempt. And we were right. All our reporting has been borne out to be exactly correct in the last few 
weeks of hearings. And again, those shows, that reporting could not have happened unless you were there to support us at patreon.com forward slash narrative. So it costs as little as $5 a month. We recommend $10 a month. It's a bit of money. I get that it's a bit of money in tough times. But when you think about the work that we're doing, when you think about the fact that we're helping democracy survive, and when you think about the impact we've already proven to have on the ecosystem and on the news cycle, it, it, is, it is money well spent. And it's money well spent for you and for generations still to come. So hopefully you'll join us on patreon.com forward slash narrative. Um, I'll stop talking now and wish you all a good summer if you're going to have one. I'll be here because I certainly intend to continue to cover the news when it's big. We'll be doing those repeat episodes and we have a lot we're working on for next season. There are so many interesting stories yet to be uncovered. Plus, of course, we're in an election year. We're really excited to be a voice during that election year and help uh, continue to grow the understanding of what's been happening to America since 2016 and how we're going to fight it and ultimately defeat it. So from me to you, thank you again for your support. It's been unbelievably appreciated and we're grateful for everything you've done for us. And we'll continue to serve you and serve our audience if we can. Uh, we just urge you as many of you as possible to, to join up at patreon.com forward slash narrative. And on that note, uh, have a great weekend. We'll be back on Tuesday. There'll be a show on Tuesday. It'll be a repeat episode, but I'll be around to introduce it. Uh, so join us again on Tuesday and uh, Thursday next week for Narrative Live. Have a good night, everybody. Mm -hmm.